All right, thanks, Ben, and good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. If it is your first Sunday, uh, welcome especially to you guys. Uh, thanks for being here and joining us for one of our gatherings, and uh, welcome to all of you at home as well, uh, listening uh, from, from your homes. Um, we miss you guys and hope you are, hope you are well. Uh, we are in the book of 2 Corinthians right now, preaching-wise, so if you have a Bible or phone app and want to turn there uh, to chapter 5, we'll be starting chapter 5 today. Uh, feel free to do that at any point. Uh, now or during the sermon, but this will be on screen here in just a second as well. Uh, but we are, we are approaching uh, almost midway here in this book series already, even though it's going to take us through uh, early March uh, to get through. We are approaching halfway through the book. Uh, this is one of the letters of the New Testament that Paul wrote to the churches, uh, the church here being the church in Corinth, which was a Greco-Roman port city, a uh, very large city actually, uh, that Paul had visited, planted a church, preached the gospel. There were, uh, there were conversions. He he established order from those conversions and started a church with leadership and with discipleship uh, intentionality, and then he left to start churches elsewhere. Uh, but after he left, he wrote, he wrote letters back, as was kind of his pattern. This is why we have these letters in the Bible, that he wrote letters to them after he had planted their church, uh, knowing them, loving them from afar, and seeking to instruct them about a whole slew of things, but mostly to remind them about what the gospel is and, and how it uh, is for all of life, and it is for their future hope. And as he points them back, he's kind of pointing them forward then as well, but pointing them back to the cross and the empty tomb to kind of ground them uh, in their identity and uh, what their uh, present and, and future hopes uh, truly were as sinners. So um, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10 today. If you were here last week, we talked about this uh, word picture of jars of clay. And so he is uh, still on the theme of talking about weakness in the Christian life. Why it's normative, not, it's not going to be this, this way 100% of the time, but why it's normative for Christians to suffer, especially Christian leaders, but all of us as Christians, we suffer, we have weaknesses, uh, we have blind spots, and that's actually a good thing that this is the case. If it was the opposite, it would send all the wrong signals about what it means to be saved. And so he's been, he's been beating this drum over and over again throughout the book. And last week he talked about how we as Christians are like this very commonplace vessel, uh, kind of like a, I, I said last week, like a, a common scratched old Tupperware full of treasure inside. That's what jars of clay would have been in the first century. So this very commonplace thing, that's, that's what we're like. We're fragile, we're, we're breakable, we're commonplace, we're not flashy. We're very, uh, in, in that sense, mundane and weak. But inside we have this treasure, the treasure being Christ, the treasure being a future hope of eternal life, the treasure for Paul being this New Testament ministry he talked about that he had over and against the Old Testament ministry that predicted and, and preceded it but gave way to it. That was chapter 3. This week, though, he's going to talk about weakness again, but in the sense that better days are ahead. So kind of in a contrasting way, like we're weak now, uh, but one day in him, and we're, we're strong in him now, but one day we will have new glorified bodies. Uh, better days are coming. There's a brighter future for us. And so he kind of spins off on this idea of present weakness uh, into the idea of uh, how that's a good thing, looking forward to, to our future hope. So more on that here as we go, but that kind of sets the stage for... Um, where we're headed. So let me read 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 10. Today we'll talk about walking by faith, not by sight. It's kind of like an overarching thing uh, for a big th uh, three themes in today's passage, but uh, as Christians we talk a lot about this, how we, we walk by faith and trust in God, not by the physical only, not by what we see, though we can see God work. Uh, it's not to, to downplay sight, but it's to say we walk by faith and not, not simply by the physical and what we see as if we trust in ourselves, but we trust in God. 
all the time. All right, so let's read verse 1 through 10, and we'll come back and, and get through this. Verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right, so let's go back to the, the first verse and, and work through this. I have three big themes today. We'll start with the positives to a destroyed home. Paul has several. There's a couple of big angles he takes here, and we'll look at those two today. Uh, let's read verse 1 again, the first part of verse 1. He says, For we know, speaking to Christians, of course, in Corinth, so this is a Christian hope, we know, Christians, that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we still have a building from God in the heavens. And so in one sense, Paul is just quite simply talking about his physical body here, in case that wasn't clear. Uh, not in a body is bad, spirit is good kind of platonic way, but still acknowledging that we are a body and spirit. That's what it means to be human. We are a body and spirit. And that as we move through life and approach death, we get closer to that time when we'll be with Jesus in spirit and closer to the time when he'll raise our bodies physically from the dead in a glorified new kind of way, like Jesus' body itself was raised on that first Easter morning 2,000 years ago. Or a time, as he says here in this passage, when what is mortal will be swallowed up uh, by life. I love that image of the, the comprehensiveness by which our bodies will be remade and, uh, and glorified on the new earth. And this, of course, uh, is a good thing for, for Paul, for all of us, for the church he's writing to, but for us as Christians, this is a good thing. Verse 8 says, yes, because of this, in light of all of this, we are of good courage. We have courage to face uh, our, our weaknesses, courage to face sufferings, courage to face persecutions, courage to face the notion of death uh, because of what's, what's true for us in the future, this, this guaranteed hope by the Spirit that we have to live forever with Christ. So he says, yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body, it's better, and at home with Jesus, at home with the Lord. This reminded me of Philippians 1, 23, and 24 as well, where, where Paul, same author, same guy, says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. This is not a suicidal thought. This is just, if this happens, if it's like, if this is what God's will is, that I, that I would die soon, that's actually a good thing. It's better than to, be, than to remain in, in the flesh, in the body. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but then he says, it's more necessary for you that I, that I remain in, in, in the body. So, uh, tons, of, tons of great stuff going on here, uh, not least of which is the importance of church, the importance of connection with other believers here. This is what, what he says is, it's necessary. God is going to use my presence with you. It's more necessary that that happen than I, than I leave at this point. But that's, 
a whole other sermon, so we won't go there today. But, but a wonderful kind of complimentary idea here in Philippians 1 where Paul is just saying it's better and it should be better for us. It should be something we long for. Like in Revelation where it says, uh, Christ, come back or uh, return. Uh, Lord, come back soon, right? Maranatha, that idea, come back soon. Uh, that, that should be a part of our prayers. It's right for us to, to long for, for that. So if you mix all of this, though, with, with the fact that it says uh, back in 2 Corinthians 5 that our home is with Jesus. That's what it means to be at home. So we have homes in the world, right, that are good. They can be, they can be good. They're gifts from God. But our true home is with Jesus. We are aliens here. So if, if you mix all, all of this with that idea that, that our home is with Jesus, this perspective, this eternal perspective, I think does two things. One, it will explain why we sometimes look and feel like exiles and aliens and just weird to the world and how we won't drink the Kool-Aid of worldly values. This, is, this explains that, right? Undergirds it, this idea. But also, too, it should embolden us to spend our strength for the sake of others and not to be, not to kind of hedge in for the sake of our physical health or our comfort in whatever way you want to understand that. To not fear death, ultimately. And to know that we're bulletproof until God says otherwise. Like, we're not, we, we aren't going to die until God allows it. Uh, we see this theme a lot in the book of Acts uh, that came up in our last series, last, last larger series last year, but we're, we're bulletproof until God allows us not to be and until he calls us, he calls us home. And those are two, good, two very good things, two very good ways to live, hopeful ways to live and emboldening, empowering ways to live that actually allow us to love because love is sacrifice, right? So if we're kind of worried about our, our physical comfort and strength, it's going to be harder to love. That's just, that's just the, the simple math of it all. And so uh, this, this idea, this perspective allows us to spend our strength, like Christ spent his strength for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. All right, so that's the first maybe face value approach to this passage is with the first few verses in mind. Paul's just talking about when, when we die, it's okay because we have another glorified body coming. That's maybe the more obvious reading. In another sense, though, going back to verse 1, he adds this, uh, this kind of secondary clause to it. He emphasizes something deeper, and that is that we don't just have a new building from God or a new tent, so to speak, or a new body that's coming, uh, speaking of our future glorified bodies, but he talks about a new building from God specifically not made with hands. That's a very important phrase in the Bible if, if you're new to that. And in fact, if you know Paul or have read others of his letters or read the book of Acts or read actually anywhere in the Bible because this is such a pronounced theme, you know that this is basically an idiom for, or another way to say, made with God's hands. So we have a body that's coming that's made with God's hands, not ours. Or it's another idiom also for the phrase or the idea, apart from us. It's sort of the opposite of that. Think about the opposite. It's, it's the, the notion that the, the bodies themselves will not be kind of due to our works. They, they, they exist apart from our hands, apart from the works of our hands because they're the works of God's. There's a wonderful little verse in the Old Testament. In Micah 5, it's one of the, the um, minor prophets of the Old Testament. Kind of in context, actually, in verse 2, it talks about Jesus being born in Bethlehem, uh, one of those famous verses we read at Christmas time a lot. But later in that same context, he says this, that, that one of the hopes that's coming, speaking of Jesus and the New Testament era ahead of time, one of the hopes that 
was for Israel and the world was that a day was coming when God would save us from specifically bowing down to the works of our hands. That's what Jesus came to do, to save us from worshiping the the good that we do, worshiping what we create, worshiping ourselves. An era was coming when that would be leveled, that would end. And in its place, we would worship the works of God's hands, ultimately Christ, the building that he builds spiritually, which is the temple of the Spirit, the, the, the church. It's something he does, not, not us. Yet another way to simply say, saved by grace, not by works. But this is, the, the idea of bowing down to the works of, of your hands, if you know this idea from the Old Testament especially, this is the essence of idolatry and sin. And of course, in Christ, we have this hope this future Micah 5, well now it's present, but this Micah 5 hope that we have it because not only does he wash us of this sin and wash us of our sins comprehensively, including our self-worship, but also because he's the epitome of grace when he does it. When Jesus dies on that cross, he is the epitome of God's hands save, his nail-pierced hands save, not yours. This is one of the uh, most pronounced things actually that the apostles said when they brought the gospel to different cities in the Roman Empire. They talked about how specifically Christianity and Jesus and the gospel was specifically apart from the works of our hands. Distinctly. Oil and water. Apart from the works of our hands and instead the good news was that salvation's completely 100% every single day into eternity by the works of God's hands. And so When you and I face Christ then, whether you're a Christian or not here today, when we face Jesus, we don't face him to be rewarded for our good deeds, but we face him empty-handed in faith every single day. It's part of what it means to be a Christian, to mature in him, is to face him empty-handed every day and to receive from his grace, like daily bread, the Bible says. Paul uses this phrase also in Colossians 2 when he says, In Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. This this is again to say the Bible moves us from law. One of the laws of the Old Testament was circumcision made by human hands. That was a law, but that's been abrogated now. We don't do that anymore. To grace, which is to say spiritual circumcision or a removal of the flesh of sin by God's hands. So he's saying this to people who are not physically circumcised, but who are Christians, so who are spiritually purged from evil, not by the works of their hands, but by the works of Jesus' nail-pierced ones. So in the spirit of that, going back to 2 Corinthians 5, when we think then about the fragility of our bodies, how fragile they are, how jars of clay they are, our weaknesses, our sufferings, One theological lesson Paul brings into that is just simply a reminder of how our works can't save us. Makes me think of when Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, because in that state it's more likely that you'll know your need. Or or we could say, also we could add maybe a, a beatitude of blessed are those who are getting older. It's, it's maybe the, the true reason why Trying to stay young is so wrong. I don't know if you guys have had those moments before where you see someone have plastic surgery when they're like 65 and it just kind of looks weird and you're sort of like, what's wrong with this picture? It just seems kind of odd. And why are they doing this? Um, Maybe it's weird because it's also weird to try to save ourselves from our sins. That's off. 
That's weird. To go back to your youthly or, or, or strength when you were young to try to preserve your youth is to try to preserve your goodness. This is also, I think, why the Bible celebrates old age. Because to celebrate old age is to celebrate dependency on God and the wisdom of receiving over accomplishing. Here's a few verses on that that I think are helpful. There's many more. But in Proverbs 16, 31, it says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. It's obtained by following a faith-filled or righteous path. Proverbs 20, 20, 29 says, The glory of the young is their strength. You see that? The glory of someone that's young is their physical strength. But then the opposite of that is to say the gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old. And then Isaiah 46, 4 as well. God says, I will still be carrying you when you are old. Your hair will turn gray and I'll still carry you. I made you and I will carry you to safety. And for someone who's old and who can't walk, that means a lot more, right? For someone who's young to hear that, there's hope in that, but they can walk. They don't need to be carried. But to age then, there's actually blessing in that. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the old. Blessed are the ones with gray hair. Blessed are the ones whose bodies are failing them because you'll trust more in God and less in yourself. And that's a good thing. That's what Paul's saying throughout the whole book, right? If we didn't have weakness, we could not understand the gospel. It would be so hard to do it. Is this not why Jesus says it's hard when you're rich to enter the kingdom of God? It's hard when you have money. It's hard when you work really hard and accomplish and climb the ladder and are at the top of the mountain. It's almost impossible for that person to be saved from their sins because they trust in themselves. And so the Bible says, blessed are you when you age. And this is not all, obviously not true 100% of the time. It's not saying that, you know, just because you're old, you're going to become a Christian naturally. That doesn't happen, obviously. Nor is it saying to be young is a disadvantage all the time. It's not saying that either. But it's a general idea. As we, as we move from physical strength to weakness in life, frailness, so do we spiritually progress from the former to the latter. We spiritually progress from, uh, from strength to weakness when we're saved, right? This is Christianity. We've, we've, if you're a Christian, you've taken this journey, right? We take it every day. Paul's saying, I take it every day. I take this journey over again. I start all over again every day when I wake up and I'm weak and I realize that and I can't save myself. I take the journey all over again and it's wonderful. But when we come to Christ, we lay down our strong works for the sake of his grace. Like the Proverbs say here, the glory of the young is their strength. Well, the glory of the old, they're not, it can't be their strength. The glory of the old is, is knowing God. The glory of the old is, from Isaiah 64, is being carried is being lifted by God. Isn't that a wonderful picture, by the way, of God promising that? That's just like, that's the epitome of love. I'll be there for you. I made you in your mother's womb. He made us there, and he's with us our whole life, and he's saying, when you're old, when you can't walk, I'll carry you even then. And that, that's the gospel for us, right, right there. He's never going to let us go, never forsake us. He'll ensure that we finish our race. I was reading some uh, modernized Beatitudes uh, this last week from a ministry I follow called Mockingbird that I think relate. I mentioned a couple of the actual Beatitudes earlier, but these fit as well. Uh, and, and they were saying this, a blessed, this is from Matthew, it's a paraphrase of course, but 
uh, off of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. But uh, the modernized takes uh, say this, Blessed are the humble and the humiliated, for they have been relieved of the burden of self-righteousness, which is the great enemy of love. Blessed are those who can't seem to move on from loss, for they will not look to themselves for consolation, not to the works of their hands for consolation. And blessed are those who hear that they are forgiven, for they have nothing left to hide. And again, I would add this one in the spirit of 2 Corinthians 5. Blessed are those whose bodies begin to fail them, for they will look less to the works of their hands and more to Jesus's. And again, this is a good thing, right? This is what, what the Bible's saying. This is good when we make this shift in our brains, in our bodies. This is a good thing. The destruction of our earthly homes has many positive sides to it. We need nudges, and, and God in his love gives them to us. Though we, though, though we know this is not our home, though we know our greatest need is deliverance from death, though, though we know we're saved by grace and not by works, God grants us weakness and suffering and frailty to remind us of the gospel and to increasingly take our focus off of ourselves and our circumstances and our strengths and so we can put more, them more squarely onto him. Okay, then he moves to this next theme which builds uh, on the first one, the idea of more clothing, not less. Or as he says here, a, a hope that will be further clothed, not unclothed. Let me read this again, verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed, clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. All right, so let me just back up here for one second and, <clears throat> and talk about this from, from a big picture of you, is kind of understand the significance of this idea biblically. In the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve were created, some of you know this story, they were naked, remember that, and they felt no shame. Then after they sinned and rebelled against God, they sewed fig leaves together with their hands and covered themselves because they were embarrassed. They realized they were naked, they didn't know really before, they covered themselves, and they hid from God. But then something really interesting happens at the end of, uh, of that chapter as the story progresses, and that is before God exiles them from the garden, he provides them, remember what he provides them? Better clothes. So they had a, a lesser clothing in the fig leaves. God provides, that, provides them an animal skin clothing, a warmer clothing, a clothing that would protect them better from the elements as they went out into the wilderness away from God's presence. Adam and Eve made their own clothing. This, this should also remind us of the idea of the works of the hands progressing from us to God. Adam and Eve made their own clothing with their hands, but it was lesser, it, didn't, it wasn't sufficient. But then God made the second clothing. The second clothing was animal skins, and it required a death to provide, right? Which should remind us of God's grace, and ultimately Christ, which we'll get back to in, in a minute. But, but understand just that idea in the very beginning of the Bible that the story moved from lesser clothing to a greater clothing, not back to nakedness. That's not how the story of the Bible goes. We're not going back to nakedness. We're going from a lesser clothing to a greater clothing. And so fast forward then to this passage today, this idea that, that Paul says our hope is not in less clothing but in further clothing is actually really important theologically 
for, uh, for us, for, the, for, the, for his argument here, for the Bible. In one sense, we see then, in that theme, that our, our, our attempts at clothing ourselves don't solve our problems, right? We've been talking about this, but our attempts, like it was for Adam and Eve, to clothe themselves, to cover up their sin problem, it just didn't work, got it a better solution. But we also see the idea of leading us back, uh, instead of leading us back to nakedness, God further clothes us with himself, with his son's death. This is why the Bible says in verse, uh, oh, here's the Genesis 3 uh, passage, I forgot threw up there, but, um, but you see it there. And also here in Ephesians 4 then, in the New Testament, you see this language that, that Paul uses of putting on things, like putting on love, or clothing yourself with power, which is the spirit. But here it talks about putting on the new man, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And when he says this, he's not just talking about a renewed version of ourselves, but actually Christ himself. Like, the new man, the new Adam, is actually Jesus, the Bible teaches. So it's better to understand, then, your and my spirituality presently as though we put on Christ, as though we're clothed by him and by what he does for us, rather than simply just following something he says uh, for us to do for our lives. Or maybe it helps to see it this way, and I put this on screen in case this is more helpful to, to read it out. Maybe it's helpful to see it this way. The goal of Christianity is not to strip us down to ourselves, to get back to the way it was in the beginning. That's not the goal of Christianity. But instead, to add an alien solution to us, to add Christ to us, to add the clothing of God to us, because we're needy without him, we're not self-sufficient. To add his crucifixion, like the animal skins of Genesis 3 foresaw, because remember, again, an animal had to die to produce that clothing, just like now in this era, in the most fulfilled sense of the idea, Jesus had to die to provide the clothing of his grace to us. It was a prophecy of Jesus very early on in the Bible. Or again here to quote 2 Corinthians, to add his spirit to our mortal flesh. And so in Christianity then, we, we don't make it our goal to empty ourselves. I don't know if this is something you guys have heard before, much like in the world or even in the church, uh, the goal is not to empty, empty yourselves, uh, yourself, but instead to fill ourselves with something other than ourselves. Uh, my, my kids, uh, a couple of years ago at their, this sounds so Minneapolis public schooly uh, to, uh, to say this, uh, but they had, they had a, um, uh, an hour, no, not an hour, but it's a segment of their day at the end of their school day is called mindfulness time, where they would just kind of sit on mats and just be quiet. And, and they were asked to empty their minds. It sounded very like, um, I don't know, almost kind of Eastern religious-y to my wife and I. So we were sort of like, what are they doing? I guess I kind of get how you want to calm your classroom, right? Uh, and, and just not have noise for just 10 minutes or whatever. But they had that. But we, we actually instructed our kids during that time, hey, it's totally fine to do that. But, but you, so as Christians, we don't, the Bible never says empty your mind. It says, fill your mind with something you don't have. God, Christ, his grace. We don't, we're not ultimately fasters as Christians. We, we don't abstain as much as we gorge on the grace of God. And so the Bible says, when it talks about meditating, it talks about filling your minds, not emptying them. It's about 
clothing ourselves with grace rather than undergoing some kind of religious cleanse diet that seeks to eradicate the evil from within. That's not Christianity. Our hope is in the further clothing, not a return to nakedness, a return to you, a return to how you're supposed to be in the beginning. That's not the story. It wasn't the story even in Genesis. How much more is it not the story here in the New Testament? The story moves us to a union with God, a union with Christ, a clothing of his death and resurrection. So even Jesus gets at this when he says, after his resurrection, you, speaking to his disciples, will be clothed with the Spirit. You'll be clothed like a robe with power from on high, speaking about Pentecost uh, 50 days prior to, uh, to, to this event, or to, to, that, to this time clothed with salvation rather than trying to derive it from, uh, from inside. All right, then we had this third piece in, in verse, uh, verses 9 and 10. Let me read this again. Paul says, So whether then we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Jesus. For you must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So in one sense, it's very very natural for for Paul to go here at this point in his letter because he's been talking about eternal life, right? Talking about the future and the movement from our earthly bodies to our heavenly, heavenly bodies. But there are two big questions that kind of come up from this passage that we have to answer, and they do relate, they kind of speak to each other. One, what does it mean to please God? That's a pretty important question, right? What does it mean to please Jesus? We should know that, so we can do that. And second, how does receiving what is due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil, jive with being saved by the grace of God alone and distinctly not by what we do in the body? It's made me think of Romans 4. Same guy wrote this, by the way, Paul, the same author, wrote this to a different church this time in Rome. But he seems to say the exact opposite. He says here, now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, and this is what he's saying, this is the way we we should think as Christians, to the one who does not work, but who trusts in God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So so his point here is that salvation is not a, a wage, but a gift. It's not a due it's, it's, it's a gift. It's completely given, not, not earned. But here in, in this pass, I'll go back to, to, verses 10, to verse 9 and 10. Here, the judgment seat of Christ does seem wage-based, does it, does it not? He's, he even uses the word due, like getting what you deserve or what, what's, what's due you, right? So what gives? Let's go back, though, and ask the first question, answer the first question first because it, this helps get, to, get us to the second one. The first question is, how do we please God? How do we please Christ? This is a whole other sermon, so I'm going to get really specific here and just give you a, a very broad survey. But as you survey the New Testament, three big answers kind of bubble to the top throughout the letters, throughout the gospel accounts, but throughout the letters of the New Testament. They bubble up to the top. And I think they fall into these three buckets here. I'll throw them all up. The first is from Hebrews 11.6, without faith, 
it's impossible to please God. Also from Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh, those who are self-trusters, who trust in, in themselves, it's impossible to please God that way. And the opposite of flesh is, is faith in this case. So to trust in God, to depend on him for salvation, that pleases him. It's like an aroma that goes up before him, like in prayer, and it's a pleasing thing for God to smell. Without faith, though, it's impossible to please him. We have to start there. Without trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, it's, it's impossible to please God. Then we build into 1 Thessalonians 2.4, where Paul says we speak the gospel in order to please God. So, so this is more of a proactive thing, but this is to say when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, that's pleasing to him. Whether it's sermons or classroom settings or conversations or you know, uh, dinner time conversations with your kids, whether it's very casual or very formal, anything in between, audibly speaking the gospel out into the world or into a space before you, that's actually, that, that pleases him. It makes him happy. pleases God. Then also Hebrews 13, 16, where the Bible says, doing good and sharing what you have especially with other Christians, pleases God. Doing good and sharing what you have, especially with other Christians, pleases God. And I add that parenthetical because that comes up elsewhere in the Bible so much. But if you think about it from a parental perspective, uh, those of your parents with more than one kid, doesn't it make you happy when you see your kids love each other or apologize to each other or give to each other in some capacity? Like, and then the opposite's kind of true as well when they're really at each other's throats, like that's, that's a hard thing for a parent to watch. How much more true than is it for God, who is our father, to watch his children get along and share with each other? It makes God happy when you love other Christians, especially in your church. Don't neglect that. It's impossible to keep Hebrews 13 and other passages like it if you're not an intricate part of a local church because what Christians do you know that well where you can sacrificially give to them and, and love them, right? This is a call to local church investments. How it, Christianity is not about you and your individual time with Jesus, and, and that's it. Like, you, you can't keep this, right? We can't. To please God is to love, 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 and do good towards and share with all people, but especially other, other Christians. All right, lots more to say about that, but have that in mind then as we build into the second question, which is, well, then what does verse 10 mean about receiving what is due for what we have done in the body? And this is a really hard question. I, I hope you saw that with the tension that there was with Romans 4. Um, this is difficult. This is hard theology. But, but let's, let's dive into it, though, and, see, and, and just see what the Bible's saying, all right? So what does verse 10 mean? I'll start by saying, it must relate, linguistically here we see this in verse 10, it must relate to what pleases him, right? And maybe that kind of just makes sense, like logical sense, but in verse 10 it says, uh, do what pleases him, aim to please him. Verse 10 says then, because or for, we must all appear before his judgment seat. You guys see that in verse 10? Aim to please God, aim to please Christ because we must all appear before him. And so, 
a massive, major part of the answer must be in, in what, we just, what we just talked about here. So, in other words, it doesn't mean that we're ultimately judged or ultimately saved by what we do, but instead it's referring to the genuineness of our faith, the issue of pleasing him from verse 10a, and the obedience of faith, the Bible says elsewhere, that means that, that works itself out in love and sincerity. In Galatians 6, Paul talks about what matters now is this, faith working itself out in love. At the end of the day, that's what matters for a Christian. Faith working itself out in love. And there are other words you can put, of course, to Christian living, but he's summarizing. Trust in God, trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of our sins that works itself out in sincerity, in genuineness, like it's actually true for you, but in love towards others in the spirit of how deeply you've been loved by God first. Origen, in the second century, wrote this, uh, actually in commentary on this verse. I thought this was really helpful, but this is a very, very, very ancient Christian that didn't live too long uh, after Christ, uh, who um, wrote a lot, preached a lot, but he wrote this on this verse, which I think is helpful. He basically says, guys, take the gospel seriously. Okay, so have that in mind as as we read this here. But he says, for which of you, when the scriptures are read, really pays attention God, through the prophet, threatens indeed in anger. And he's quoting now from the prophets in the Old Testament. I will send famine upon the earth, not a famine of bread or the thirst of water, but a famine of hearing the word of God. But now, God is not, in the New Testament era, God has not sent a famine upon his church, nor has he sent a thirst to hear the word of God. For we have living bread, which came down from heaven. We have living water springing up to eternal life in Christ. Why in this time of fruitfulness do we destroy ourselves by famine and thirst? It is the mark of a lazy and lingering soul to suffer want in all of this abundance. All right, so I think what he's saying here, at least in part, he's saying, in Christ, all famines have come to an end. He says, feast not fast. There is an abundance of life in Jesus, an accessibility, a closeness, a plethora of grace and knowledge about God in and through the gospel, in the Bible, for us all. And to those of us who are Christians, the question is, in the spirit of verse 10 here, are we lazily living underneath all of that? Are we taking it for granted Is it truly shaping us unto love and good deeds towards others? Origen's saying, don't fast from the gospel. Gorge yourself on it. Take it seriously. In Romans 8 as well, Paul says uh, the simple phrase, God searches our heart. And and I would ask myself, uh, you, I think this is in the subtext of verse 10 in in today's passage. God searches our heart. What's he finding there? What pleases him? Is he finding what pleases him? Is he finding a faith in, Je- in, in him, a faith in Jesus that leads to a love for, for his church? There's a great parable Jesus gives in Matthew 18, which I won't read for time's sake, but some of you guys know this parable, where th- there's this individual who owes a king about 50 lifetimes of salary of debt. 50 lifetimes of salary of debt. And he's in prison. 
and he begs for mercy, and, and the king lets him go. You guys remember this parable? The parable of the unforgiving servant? Remember what he does right after that, if you've read, read this before? He goes out, he's set free. The king just has mercy and says, I, I absolve you of the debt. And he goes right out, and he starts to choke this man who owes him $2. 50 lifetimes of salary of debt, he's forgiven, and he goes out and says, oh, you're the guy. Before I was in prison, you owed me a couple of bucks. I bought you lunch that one time. You never paid me back. And he starts choking him. And the king hears this, and he gets angry, as, you, as he should, right? You are shown such mercy, such grace, such forgiveness. How, how could you go out and, and not express that to others? And it, it was a lesser debt. Much, it was a penny compared to what you, what, what you owed, right? And, and Jesus says this because he's trying to say, in this New Testament era, you know, we, we, there, there is no power in simply saying, love others and forgive others. But the power, rather, comes from love as you've first been loved. Have, have you, in the spirit of what Origen says here, have you been, is there sincerity in your faith? Have you been wrecked and moved by the gospel to the point where you don't think about yourself that much anymore? This is a great way to pray, by the way, as well, because none of us do perfectly or ever will. But the idea to the judgment seat of Christ, I think, because the king is actually angry in that parable. When we think about the judgment seat of Christ, this is what we should think about. Has the gospel, is it actually real? Like, are, are we fasting from the gospel? Do we take it seriously? Has it actually shaped us? Is it shaping us? Is it looking like love for others, especially in the church? I mean, these are, these are questions we should be asking ourselves. Actually, at the end of this letter, Paul will say this phrase, examine yourself. He says this to Christians. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're actually in the faith. Great question. Kind of difficult, right? But a great question. Examine yourself to make sure you're not a false convert that you're looking like a Christian, but you actually aren't deep down. And when that day comes, when Jesus comes, he'll expose all. Everything will be laid bare. Like, no one's going to trick him in the end with how much you went to church. Right? Do you believe Jesus died for your sins? Do you believe he rose again? And, and, and here's the picture I'll leave you with. And this is the kind of visual from, like, an example of passage like today that either can shape us or not. But... What the Bible teaches is Christ was crucified so you can be clothed with his blood and protected from the elements of judgment and sin and death. Or think of it this way. A death had to occur, and not just any death, but the death of the Son of God, so that you and I could be protected from our shame and covered from our shame. That actually happened. Isn't that amazing? That actually happened. That's the gospel. To know that we're forgiven, to know that we're forgiven truly cannot help but change our hearts. And the judgment seat of Christ will reveal all. It will reveal broken hearts over sin, remade by grace, or it will reveal false conversions that did not work themselves out in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for both the encouragement and the warning that it has for us. The gospel is a free gift. 
It only comes through faith. Uh, none are righteous, the Bible says. So we, we pray, Father, as a church, that you would come, that you would fill our church, you would fill our, uh, the, the empty vessels of the jars of our, of our bodies, of our souls, with your spirit, that you would clothe us with the clothing of Christ. Help us not to look to the work of our hands, but to the work of God's in that, in that process. And, and at the same time, help us to be sincere Help us to pray. Help our, our private devotion to be the same as our public devotion so it's not, du- not a double life, but actually real. Help us just simply at the end of the day to be distinctly Christian, to believe in you, to trust you, to hold you close, but to believe that you're holding us closer, as Isaiah 46 sa- uh, said in, in the prophets. You promise to carry us in our old age when we can't walk anymore because honestly, We could never really walk in the first place even when we were young. We cannot walk before you spiritually. We cannot take one step of good works towards you. And so you carry us into the promised land rather than demand that we take the treacherous path ourselves. Praise be to God that that's true. Help us to sing songs of joy and thankfulness uh, and dependency uh, to you as we close uh, here today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.